Hello, and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard, and today we're going to be talking about democracy, what's wrong with it, and how we fix it. If you have thoughts on today's episode, feel free to send an email to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com and tell us what you thought. All right, let's get started. In our last episode, I talked about the events at the Capitol, the impact it had on the country, and why it's so important for moderates to stand up and push back against extremism. Today, I want to talk about something else, something that probably won't depress you half as much. I want to talk about hard work, hope, and patriotism. We are the United States of America. It's as much a promise as it is a name. One of our greatest aspirations, the American dream, is by definition a dream. We're a nation built by dreamers, those who question the limits of what's possible, those who dared, those who fought, and those who worked. On our best day, America is a champion of democracy, liberty, fairness, and freedom. We get in the ring, we put our gloves on, and we punch communism and authoritarianism right in the face. America! On our worst day, we come up short. Lately, it feels like we've been coming up short a lot. But if the glory of our nation is its promise, that promise can be renewed, restored, and most importantly, reclaimed. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I have a dream. My four little children one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The command of the Constitution is plain. There is no moral issue. It is wrong, deadly wrong, to deny any of your fellow Americans the right to vote in this country. Yet, as long as others will challenge America's security, and test the dearness of our beliefs with fire and steel, then we must stand or see the promise of two centuries tremble. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. I've never felt more strongly that America's best days and democracy's best days lie ahead. We're a powerful force for good. With faith and courage, we can perform great deeds and take freedom's next step. And we will. This nation, this idea called America, was and always will be a new world, our new world. 
And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. That's the true genius of America, that America can change. One thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. This is our historic moment. America has been tested and we've come out stronger for it. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. Not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's challenges. And we'll lead, not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. We can do this, guys. We have to do this. <laughs> I watched Joe Biden's inauguration and I cried big patriotic tears. I love my country as hokey as it sounds. I really, really do. And I believe in it. I believe in us, we the people, we can do this. We can turn this around. But it's going to take hard work and active patriotism. I think it's easy to draw a line in the sand and say that anyone that thought the election was stolen is an enemy of America. I think it's easy to say that Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are traitors for spreading lies to their constituents about the election being stolen. I think it's easy to discredit QAnon and its supporters. It's easy to be outraged by the hypocrisy on both sides of the aisle. All of those things are easy. But let's talk about what's hard. It is hard to acknowledge that nearly one in five defendants in capital riot cases served in the military. How do you go from loving our country so much that you'd give your life for it to storming the Capitol in an effort to overturn democracy? It is hard to know that Senator Ted Cruz advanced claims of voter fraud for the sake of his own political ambitions, but also to know that Republican voters in his home state don't really have a problem with that. His approval amongst Republicans only dipped five points. It is hard to look this in the face and see it for what it is. The tip of an iceberg. Oof. I know. I said it was going to be an upper and here we are. But there's no getting around the fact that there is a larger problem under the surface. A crack in our democracy that has become as familiar and as American as the crack in the Liberty Bell. Last year, Gallup said that 18% of Americans approve of the job that Congress is doing. 18%. If that feels crazy, consider this. Our approval of Congress hasn't hit 30% in 10 years. More people approved of the finale of Game of Thrones than they do of Congress. And that finale was horrible. Bran Stark, are you kidding me? Congress is supposed to be the voice of the people. They are our representation in government. They're the people that we send to Washington to speak on our behalf and we loathe them. We don't approve of our own voice. That's a problem. In 2020, we saw more Americans come out to vote than ever before, which is awesome. But that was still only 66% of eligible voters. 66%, which I know feels crazy because if you are a human being in America, it seems like there was no way to avoid this election. But somehow, 
We still ended up with only 66% of the electorate turning out. If we were in school, that would be a D. In America, that's a big old D for democracy, which is a problem. Democrats and Republicans are still arguing about the severity of COVID and 400,000 Americans are dead. That's a problem. We're losing our shared idea of what it means to be an American, which is, you guessed it, a problem. We can't even all agree on whether or not the election was free and fair. Problem. But I don't want to just bum you out, so I wanted to find solutions. And if I'm being completely honest, I didn't even know where to start. These problems all felt so big, so abstract. So I did what any good millennial would do. I googled it. And I stumbled across something unexpected. Hope. I found a report written by the Academy of Arts and Sciences Commission on the Practice of Democratic Citizenship. It's a mouthful. I know. If you aren't familiar with the Academy of Arts and Sciences, it is literally older than the Constitution. They're OG smart people. So when I figured out that not only are they aware of this problem, they actually already have a team of people working on it, I got excited. They put together a commission to look into it, and that commission wrote a report called Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century. And believe me when I say this, it was exactly what I was looking for. Solutions. Solutions to all of our democratic problems. 31 solutions to be exact. Broken out across six key subject areas. It is less of a report and more of a to-do list, a step-by-step -step guide to fixing our democracy, which is exactly what I was looking for. So I reached out instantly. Which brings us to today's guest, Carolyn Lukensmeyer. Carolyn serves on the commission, and before that, she was in charge of the National Institute of Civil Discourse. She is a lightning rod. Her passion for democracy and her energy for fixing our problems was so inspiring to me. I hope that our conversation will excite and motivate you half as much as it did me. Without any further ado, here's Carolyn Lukensmeyer. Good afternoon, Carolyn. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Hillary. I'm very excited to be with you today. Well, Carolyn, honestly, I am really excited to have you. I can't think of a more poignant time to be talking about, about democracy. Before we really dig into the report and your guys' findings, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of background on the Academy of Arts and Sciences, the commission, and kind of the, the methodology behind the report? I'd be happy to, and some of your listeners, maybe most of your listeners, may never have heard of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences before. It was established in 1780, a full seven years before we had a constitution, wow. led by John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, who then understood that for our republic democratic government to work, we would have to have access, our leaders would have to have access to science, research, and knowledge as the world evolved. So this moment in time for the Academy to put out a recommendation, a set of recommendations about evolving our democracy to match what's going on in the world is really quite extraordinary. And frankly, I would say more important than even the members of the Academy knew when they decided to do this. There were 30 some members of the commission. 
They ran the entire ideological spectrum politically from liberal to conservative. They were academicians, they were media pundits, they were citizen grassroots practitioners. So the commission itself had a diversity of participation that made our discussions extremely rich and deep. Then in addition to that, something the Academy not ever done this way before, we did 51 listening sessions, sessions across the United States, rural communities in Northern Maine to 250 people in an auditorium in, at UCLA. So by the time we put our recommendations together, not only did we have the benefit of commission members, research the staff had done, but from literally thousands of ordinary people across the country. To me, that's one of the things, not only me, but all commission members, that gives us great confidence in what we have put forward to the country. I wanna say one last thing, Hillary. Sure. This is an amazing commitment to the process of our commission. Every recommendation in the report was unanimously supported by every member of the commission. Wow. Whether they're from rural Kentucky or New York City or Seattle, Washington. So, and you can imagine that meant we were committed to listening to one another. We were committed to exploring our differences. Now, of course, some of the recommendations are not as wholeheartedly supported by one end of the spectrum as the other, but we all agree that we would stand positively behind all 31 recommendations. That's incredible. And honestly, I wish that Congress would follow suit in this in that practice. Stand our democracy well if Congress would follow suit. Oh my goodness. So, okay, so you guys basically put together like the Avengers of the political spectrum. So the superhero dream, dream team. And then you talk to thousands of Americans. And I think one thing that we can all imagine is that the more Americans you talk to, the more problems you're going to put in the basket. So I'm curious, like, how did you guys sort of sift through all of the problems that you could take on and decide on the ones that you did take on? Great question, Hillary. To begin with, remember our commission was the practice of democratic citizenship. So our interest was the uniqueness of America's constitutional democracy, constitutional democratic republic, I must say, is a commitment to actual, and this has always been an aspiration, that every person has a vote. So we knew that's a centerpiece. We had to look at the issues of what is going on in our electoral system. We also knew that given the diversity of our country, different people, the Sudanese refugees in Maine, were going to put different issues at the front of their basket than were farmers in the Midwest. So we didn't want our recommendations to narrowly focus on any specific policy issues. We wanted them all to be on democratic reform. We selected three elements that are important in our democratic republic. It is civic culture. What are the values? What are the norms? What are the traditions that make us America and that reflect our, our ability to be an effective democracy? And then of course it was political institutions. How are they functioning? How responsive are they to we, the people? And then the whole realm that we call civil society, 
all the non-governmental organizations, faith-based, nonprofits focusing on a range of activities. So what we felt has become broken is that these three elements were driving each other down. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do was create a report and recommendations that could recreate the right link between civic culture, responsiveness of political institutions, and all of the resources of civil society. When those things are in tune with one another, it creates safe spaces for people to come from their better angels. When they're out of tune with each other, it pushes people back into their baser instincts. We have just watched three long decades of Americans being pushed by our large media, by social media, by our politicians themselves, by the way we treat each other. People have been pushed further and further into defending their identity and coming from places of anger, frustration, and baser instincts. Our hope with this report is to recreate spaces, both physical and psychological, that will allow people to feel more trust, to desire to understand people of difference, and once again come together in civic spaces from our better angels. Wow. That it's such an inspiring call to action, honestly, because something we talk about on the show a lot is how we, we make politics our identity and it makes the stakes of compromise so high. And I think that you're you're absolutely right that our society and all of the elements surrounding discourse do not incentivize getting along. It's quite the opposite. Everything rewards obstruction, really. And I think like so much of our government, the way it's set up, um, and civic society to a larger degree, is based on this principle that we do want to get along. So I think in the last 30 years, as you said, as we see people no longer wanting to get along the same way, the system sort of falls apart, which is why I think your report is so needed right now. It really meets the moment. And it's really true that both our institutions and in some ways, worst of all, our political leadership has been modeling, demonizing people who hold different views than you do. So we've seen that what's happened is if I'm in this party and you're in that party, we automatically think that we're enemies. And it's so contrary to human nature. Human beings are social beings. They want to be together. How they behave when they're gather, together is a function of the structures they're in and the signals they're receiving. And as you just said, the vast majority of signals that our public has been receiving for the last decades have been to drive them, to divide them, and to see one another as enemies. We have to reverse that process as quickly as we can. Do you think that people want to reverse it though? President Biden has been making quite the point to call for unity and encouraging all of us to come together, but that's fallen on deaf ears for a lot of conservatives and even people on the left that don't really want to unify. 
I was asked in an interview a couple of weeks ago about Biden's commitment to healing our divides and uniting the country. And since what happened on January 6th, you've heard many, many people call out for the necessity of healing the divides and uniting the country. And I was asked, well, can President Biden do that? It was completely a direct, quick answer from me. President Biden can only do that if millions of Americans step up in this broader role of being citizens who respect the Constitution and each other and engage in the activities in circles that they have influence in, with family, with friends, where they, where they pray, where their faith is expressed, where they work. That's what it's going to take, where each of us commits to connecting with someone who we know in some way has adopted a conspiracy theory or frankly still believes this election was fraudulent. We don't know what that number is, but whatever the tens of millions that are still holding on to the idea that Biden was not legitimately elected, it isn't just Biden's responsibility to convince them that he and Harris were legitimately elected. It's we the people's responsibility to step into that civic and public space in our own communities. And frankly, the private space in our own homes with our own families. Most of us, most of us know one or more people who are holding on to that belief that this, the most sacred institution in American democracy, one person, one vote, leading to a peaceful transition of power has been violated first by disinformation continually repeated after the election, leading up to the terrorism we saw in the Capitol and pray to God, not more. Now is the time we must join hands with the duly elected members of the Senate, the House and the President and Vice President and take some responsibility for this healing process to unite the country. I think that taking responsibility is not, obviously it's not easy, right? So I think that encouraging people to do work that is hard will be difficult. What in your view or the view of the commission can we do to encourage and incentivize that type of responsible citizenry? At the very basic level, and this we saw in 2020 was like a miracle. It was the largest participation in an American presidential election ever. And it was people all across the continuum ideologically. But we actually have a recommendation that it is time for voting to become a responsibility that you do participate. I wanna pause you there for just a second. The report has a lot of recommendations about empowering voters. And before we get into those, I wanna read a quote from the report. A citizen that you talked to from Jackson, Mississippi said, you get discouraged. You're like, they didn't do anything the last time. So sometimes I do feel like your voice isn't heard or it doesn't, your vote doesn't count or matter, end quote. That's something that I've heard a lot. Can you walk me through how we get to that place where voters need to be empowered? How did they lose their power in the first place? One of the gifts of both our declaration and our constitution, although there were flaws in both, 
was to put into writing the aspiration that every voice counts, that every person, every citizen in the United States would have a vote. One person, one vote. And we, it's taken us a civil war to get past some of the remnants of the way in which African-Americans were treated as not full human beings. Women were completely excluded, even long after African-Americans were brought into the constitutional basis. So the bottom line is all throughout American history, we've had a tug between political forces that wanted to expand the voter base and political forces that wanted to suppress the voter base by passing laws that made it more difficult, particularly, frankly, for people of brown skin and black skin to vote. So we do have a history of putting in place things that keep people from participating. We've also made great strides in it. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 under the leadership of President Lyndon Johnson was a giant leap forward. In recent years, we took some back steps. So when we looked at strategy two, empowering voters, we looked at the facts. What are things that make it more possible for people to vote? And what are things that are in place that make it less possible? And if you look at our seven recommendations, they are as specific as, let's make the federal election day on a holiday. We picked Veterans Day. We thought that was a wonderful way to honor the very men and women who serve to protect our freedoms and to make it possible for everyone to vote without loss of income or without loss of an ability to care for their families and children while they went to vote. That's one end of the spectrum. An example of the voter suppression, we specifically talked about restoring federal and state rights to citizens with felony convictions immediately and automatically upon release from prison. So we both looked at what keeps people from voting, but would make it easier. Now, interesting, Hillary, the COVID crisis that we've been in gave us a pilot in 2020 for what would it mean to open up how you vote, whether you vote in by mail, which in most states you have always been able to do with an absentee ballot, but with some very serious restrictions about what you had to prove to get an absentee ballot. Well, what would happen if we just sent out a ballot to every voter? And by the way, the state of Oregon has already been doing that for a very long time. So COVID enabled us to see that the combination of early voting by mail-in, early voting by person, and then in-person voting led to the largest participation in an American election for president that we have ever seen. So we just demonstrated to ourselves that frankly, the majority of recommendations we have in the empower voter category could be implemented. Yeah, I mean, we're starting out with a win. We'd actually have to move backwards, right? And unfortunately, 
we've already seen, take the runoff election in Georgia, the state legislature in Georgia has already introduced some legislation to pull back from this level of openness that happened in the presidential election and the runoff election. We don't know if it will pass, but the reality is the legislature has introduced that restriction, even despite the demonstration that it was the largest and cleanest election that we have ever had. So when I hear that, like my gut says, why would you want less people to vote? And it feels it feels straightforward to me is that you you want less people to vote when you think that they won't vote for you. It, am I missing something? Is that too straightforward? Well, I don't think there's any question. Both efforts to expand the electorate and experts to reduce the electorate in our history and even currently for some people are politically motivated. But again, if we're talking about our commitment to our constitutional democracy, that was one of the tenets that we presented to the entire world that has been an inspiration. So I'm willing to say the motivations that are totally political, we should just set them aside and move forward on doing the right thing that is the aspiration in our constitution. I wanna highlight one other recommendation in the Empower Voters. Sure. You know, because, because most civics education has been dropped from our curriculum since the 60s and 70s, and by the way, we also recommend getting it back into the curriculum, but we recommend that there's a pre-registration of 16 and 17-year-olds so that it becomes a way to educate them in terms of what their civic duty as a citizen is and what the mechanics are of getting registered and voting. We tried to cover the support for people who need extra help for whatever reason in either getting registered or actually voting, but to come as close as we can to universal voting being the aspiration, including moving toward making it a requirement. Kind of like uh, getting your driver's license, you have to take driver's ed, right? And voting is equally important. So why wouldn't you have to take an education course for your right to vote? Pretty logical. Pretty logical. We have nothing to lose from expanding the pool of people that can participate in our democracy for all of the reasons that you've stated, one person, one vote. But if we don't help people take advantage of that vote, then we are denying them a right that we we pride ourselves on. No? Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I want to talk about equal representation. One of the recommendations in the report is actually expanding the House of Representatives. Can you explain that to me? Why would we want to do that? Well, if you think historically, <laughs> in the first session of the House of Representatives, I don't have this number at the tip of my tongue, but given the U.S. population, each member of the House of Representatives represented only some tens of thousands of people. Today, each member of the House of Representatives is, is representing hundreds of thousands of people, which makes it very, very difficult for them to actually feel an authentic and direct connection with their own constituents. So you're saying that they represent too many people to represent any of them well, right? What do you, what do, you do about that? That feels like a big one. So in our report, we suggested that the House of Representatives has to be enlarged 
so that there is in fact a more achievable link between me as the representative and the thousands of constituents that I serve. So enlarging it like by how much? Because I one of your recommendations also talks about um, making some member or some districts multi-member districts. Yes. Are you thinking about enlarging it that way by adding more members or by the number of members? That's one strategy, but we also had a deep discussion about the number of members. And we went back and forth between several numbers. And we chose, as you will see, and your listeners when they read it, that in the end, we didn't put an exact number in the report because we think this is something that needs to be further studied and worked on. But all the members of the commission did get comfortable with increasing the size of the House of Representatives by 50 people. Why 50? In part, we chose 50 because the actual House of Representatives, if we joined the gallery as part of the working floor, could accommodate that many members without having to leave the physical building of the actual house itself. And Hillary, just two weeks ago, I, we haven't spoken about this yet, but we watched that House chamber, we watched that Senate chamber be violated by domestic terrorism in a way that we'd never before seen in our country. So the salience and the importance of not only this work on representation and empowering voters, but the recommendations we have about revitalizing every American's commitment to our democracy and to each other as Americans is more significant and more necessary right this moment than has been true since the Civil War. I mean, because we might be on the brink of the next one. Like, I don't mean to be hyperbolic about that, but I think that the stakes right now are so high. I think that we have decade by decade degraded, or sorry, degraded our our government and the value that it has. Like, I think that you don't get a demagogue by accident as president of the United States. Like that doesn't happen overnight. That's not a fluke. We get there slowly. So I want to read a quote from the third strategy in the report. The strategy is called ensuring the responsiveness of political institutions. The quote that you guys start with, I think will resonate with a lot of people really anybody that's ever felt disillusioned by our politics. So again, somebody in Jackson, Mississippi said, and I quote, most of the officials that we elect, I don't feel like come from where we are. They have no understanding of killing themselves and working four jobs to support their kids and their athletics and their schooling or whatever. I just feel like they don't have an idea of what we go through in the middle to lower class, end quote. That really stuck out to me because I know a lot of people feel like that. Like their politicians don't care. Like they don't know what they're going through. It's easy to make policies that impact our lives because they don't impact yours. I think that's how people become so disenchanted with our political system. So walk me through the recommendations that you guys have to combat this, to keep this from happening. Well, in our first two strategies, we focused on the voter and representation. This strategy is all about the responsiveness of government institutions and elected officials after they're in office. 
And it's very ironic, Hillary. This is a field that I've worked in for 30 years and enormous innovation has happened in the United States around the methods by which elected officials could stay in very active touch with their public, not just the people who voted for them, but all the people they're representing. And yet other countries around the world, they've often used methods we created, but they are now far ahead of us in using those methods, institutionalizing them. I'll give you one example. There's a process called citizen assemblies, where you pull together a representative sample of the country to take on an issue that's very important to the country. Climate change would be a good example in the United States today. And that citizens assembly operates, it's very serious work. It goes over a period of time in which experts come and present almost like a jury to the citizens who are assembled. And eventually after they've heard the pro and the con, they've had whatever experts they want, the research they want, the citizen assembly actually makes a decision. And that decision is then represented to the federal government. The country of Ireland used a citizen assembly on the issue of gay rights. Hmm. And the country was shocked in that there was a time when the populace was further ahead than the combination of people in their parliament as you and I are speaking. The British parliament has authorized citizen assemblies, I believe it's in five regional locations in Britain on climate change. When the five regional ones are done, there will be a national citizens assembly on what their recommendations are to the British government, to the British parliament about actions they want taken around climate change. So the place that this kind of method is particularly powerful is where you know the population's views are ahead of the combination of people who've been elected. That is not surprising. We the people as a collective tend by definition to change our views in most cases, not always by any means and not all people, but we're often ahead of what the institution can bring out of its determined process. We also suggest that now online, there's ways that members of Congress could actually engage with a random sample of their constituents. I believe we recommended that it should be done four times a year. Like a town hall? Yeah, it's like a town hall, only it's actually done online. So much less expensive, mm -hmm. much less time relative for anyone to have to travel. So basically we did four recommendations which encourage the participation of citizens in governance. We're past where the only time that they should listen to us is when we vote. We need, we the people has to be as real in governance as it is during the election cycle. And these four recommendations are designed to make that real. And frankly, all four of them already exist. Some of them exist at the local level in the United States. And what the report's doing is saying, hey, let's take it to the state level and the federal level. And some of them exist in other countries, but not yet in the United States. So it's nothing that we can't manage. It, in this, this is the most clear example, Hillary. We have all the resources, we have all the technology, 
We know the vast majority of the people of the country would like to do this. All that's missing is the political will to enact it. Hmm. That means that's only going to happen if the American public pushes to make their elected officials responsive to what they want. We shouldn't be waiting around for our members of Congress to decide to do this. District by district, we should collectively be speaking up and saying, we want you to do this. People don't understand the power that they have. They not only don't understand the power that they have, but as we've grown larger in population, as our housing patterns have changed, as our public spaces have changed, we don't have a lot of places where collectively we come together to understand what we could do together. Mm-hmm. And that's what great grassroots organizers understand how to do, is they go into a community and what, whatever needs to be done for the 10,000 of us who think the same thing to get to know each other, to get connected to each other, so we then can send a collective voice. Yes, when you just add us up one by one by one, we're not very powerful. When you put us together collectively, we are powerful. I have to correct one thing. Okay. We're powerful in the aggregate when we vote. Right. Because that's that's the way that system works. It's just, it's hard when you only vote for president once every four years and for other members of Congress, it's, I mean, it's more frequent, but if they're doing something that you don't like, your recourse is limited. Like if they're not representing you the way you want to be represented, you can protest, but if they don't care. So that's what all four of these recommendations are designed to do. That period between elections. We are now governing. We, the American public, want action on our health and COVID, on the economy that's been so destroyed by COVID, on climate change, and on racial justice. Those are the four things that are consistently being said across the country by the American poll data, by the American public, that in poll data, more than 50% of us, and in most cases, much, much more than 50% of us, want the government to function on those issues. And recommendations for in strategy three are ways the government could do that. Do you think the government, at least elected members of government, will fight that reform? Well, actually, I led the National Institute for Civil Discourse for six and a half years. And our experience, both at state level and federal level, there are lots and lots of members that actually gravitate toward and want to do this sort of activity. The deep, deep partisanship has been led at the leadership level, which in many cases keeps the members from moving in this direction. But these four recommendations, individual members who want to do it could step up and begin to do it on their own, in their own districts, or for example, in the recommendation three on citizens assembly, let's the problem solvers caucus in the house. We love them. They're now bipartisan. They now have worked together. They could come together and say, we want a citizens assembly on climate change. That's true. I mean, they grow in power, right? Especially after the COVID deal. They're pretty hard to ignore. They could definitely do it. Getting back to the report, I am actually really excited to ask you about strategy four, which deals with our civic bridging structure. 
For my listeners, if you're not sure what that means, it's basically dealing with our community. So book clubs, churches, walking groups, libraries, cafes, public parks, you name it. Basically all the places that we get together to be together. So, Carolyn, in the report, the commission says, and I quote, One of the most striking findings of the commission's listening sessions was that in the era of profound polarization, Americans are hungry for opportunities to assemble, deliberate, and converse with one another. Even when a pandemic forced Americans to maintain social distance and stay home, they found new ways to connect with one another. The commission's fourth strategy is designed to satisfy that hunger. Now, knowing your background in civil discourse, I imagine that's right up your alley. So tell me. How does the commission satisfy that hunger? One of the recommendations that I am most committed to implementing is recommendation 4.1. The recommendation essentially says we need to establish a trust for civic infrastructure so that we can scale up what exists in pockets all over the country in civil society, people can get together to become a collective we as opposed to an aggregate. Now, we modeled this recommendation intentionally off something that's been in the United States laws for decades called the National Endowment for Democracy. That endowment actually receives a congressional appropriation. What? every year in the budget. I believe it's $300 million. Well, it's not exactly chump change. Exactly. And that, it's been bipartisan from the beginning. It passes every year without question. And it's all focused on helping build democracies in other places in the world. Our idea with the National Trust is to say, we the commission and our champion partnership organizations will raise the funds initially to demonstrate that if you make investments in civic infrastructure in a community, the community as a whole begins to behave more democratically. And our thought is to probably pick 10, maybe more communities in which the investments happen in a very consistent way so that we have metrics to show that if you build up civic media, if you build up public places that everybody feels safe to go to, if you train more facilitators who are capable of holding a tough discussion on racial justice, as an example. So if you build up those things that create a democratic community, that people will in fact then own it and sustain it over time. Our hope, is to demonstrate after two or three years that this is working and then to suggest that it also should be an appropriation in the federal budget. And do you think that that work that you're describing would also help to quell some of the civic outrage? Like we've seen in the last year alone, such anger from the American people on all sides of the political spectrum And I think a lot of it is that they have no way to express how they're feeling. There's no infrastructure to express those feelings except outrage, violence, and protesting. Do you think that that would help quell that a little bit? Definitely. And a step that has to happen even before that outrage is reduced 
is the ability to bridge the differences. You know, Alex de Tocqueville traveled across the United States in 1837. And in his book, Democracy in America, he already describes a reality about America that is as true today as it was in 1837. He said that the vast majority of Americans leave their political ideology to come together to solve problems. Now my words, not his, if given half a chance. So we know, yes, there are extremes on both ends of the continuum, right and left. And we just saw the most tragic example of that coming from the far right here in Washington two weeks ago. But the bottom line is those percentages, and we don't know for sure what it is, but let's say it's 10 to 12% on both ends or 10 to 15% on both ends, make it the biggest number. So 30% of Americans are too tied into that frustration and still wanting to blame the other side. That still leaves 70% of us. If we create a safe enough space, if we give people the help to slow down and realize that step number one is to understand one another, why does my life experience lead me to believe that we have to have a wall on the southern border? Why does your life experience lead you to believe that having a wall on the southern border won't help anything? And besides that, it will spoil the environment for animals and birds that cross that border every day, not to mention millions of people. So it's slowing the conversation down so that we actually come to understand one another. And I want to say, since 2016, hundreds of these kinds of processes have grown up spontaneously across the country. So organizations well known for this work, Everyday Democracy on Racial Justice, Essential Partners in Cambridge, Massachusetts are wonderful examples of doing great bridging work. Many, many faith-based groups are doing bridging work on a continuous basis. We saw lots of success by in the same community, a very liberal church, both by politics and theology, got together with a very conservative church, both by politics and theology, and said, okay, let's create this capacity to listen to one another, to gain an understanding, not to influence, not to be right, but to understand. And once that happens, once that human spark has happened again, then people do not, they still disagree but they don't demonize one another and they don't make enemies of each other. And when that has happened, that's what heals the divide. That's what makes us be able to once again create a United States of America. And there's a thrill in it, right? Like, I mean, we're attracted to talking to people that think differently than us. It's why we love to argue, but also why we love to agree. Exactly. And I've just given lots of examples, but fundamentally, the National Trust is to set up the mechanism to have the resources to support this kind of work in communities all across the country. We'll need a range of funders to invest in the leadership capacity in these communities to eventually build up to what we called a civic one million. People who have are identified as catalytic leaders in their communities who are committed to continuing to innovate in bridge building, 
who are continuing to be responsive to whatever changes as we go forward. So are we talking neighborhood organizations, like people to fund those? Could definitely be. It could be churches. It could be a small business. I mean, I'll give you a couple examples that, again, I told you that in the last five years, this is just happening like a thousand flowers blooming across the country. Um, in Cleveland, Ohio, a young woman in her late 20s named Megan Anderson created a process called craft beer conversations that every Friday night, she and friends of hers from college went into a different craft beer bar and set up for people to talk across their differences. A gentleman named Craig Freshly in Maine called what, what he calls makeshift coffee houses, where every Friday night for a couple of years, he went into with his team to a different small town in Maine and went to the favorite coffee shop and set up for people to talk across their differences. Those are just two examples that I got to know very, very well. I mean, even this podcast, are, like if you guys are listening to this podcast, you want to hear from different sides of the ideological spectrum and figure out what you think about it. So it's like, if you're interested enough in that concept to listen to this, then you should absolutely be interested enough to look into the organizations that Carolyn is recommending and this report. Yes? Yes, without question. It's time to talk about the media. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so one of your recommendations is that we need to build civic information architecture that supports common purpose. So talk to me about the media and what is information architecture that supports a common purpose? When social media first appeared on the scene, we thought of it as the great democratizer. We thought of it as every citizen becomes a journalist. Well, what we've learned is that the way social media as a structure operates is it means millions of people have become broadcasters and very few people have increased their capacity to listen. So yes, we have to look at some of the even legal and ethical pressures that can be brought to bear on the big platforms to be more responsible about what they do allow on and what they don't allow on. And we have to do that in a context of never violating the freedom of expression. So this is very complicated. But the position we took at the commission was yes, that problem has to continue to be worked on and we've been looking at it already for years and some things have recently happened that make that show some progress. But we also have to think about how do we create a civic media? A media which is designed to respond to the needs of our citizenry where the media is not operating for profit, but where the media is operating off its ability to support and increase the common good. What do we do to both continue to create the innovations and create public media platforms, but then in fact somehow establish a mandate to create for public interest, for profit social media platforms. So I think we in the commission understood this is extremely complex, but let me go right to the bottom line. Maybe the most difficult thing 
to reestablish in our country as our democracy has been threatened is a commitment of all members of the public to the truth. Mm. Currently, media has put us in silos where we have how many tens of millions of Americans that actually believe the election was fraudulent. And yet from any data that's available, there was no massive fraudulent behavior in this election. That is the most fundamental truth on which a democracy resides. Then we can go right back up to the polarization in the COVID. We still have communities engaging in violent behavior about whether or not to wear masks. And yet again, from any perspective about truth and science and public health, we know that wearing masks and socially distancing is one of the tools we have to continue. Which I think is actually a pretty good segue into strategy six, which we talked about a little bit, but it is inspiring a culture of commitment to American constitutional democracy and to one another. And I think that this, I I love that it's the closer of the report because I think that it, in a way, is the best call to action for the other five strategies to be implemented. I just feel like somewhere along the way, we lost sight of what makes our country great, which is ironic given the last four years have been all about making America great again. But I think if we actually want to do that, we need to really look at how we inspire this culture of commitment to our constitution for all that we talk about it. So talk me through what the commission thought is the best way to go about fixing that. We actually believe that maybe it's time for all Americans to commit a year of national service when they finish high school. So that there's a shared experience of what does it mean to be an American and to give in the form of a service program to actually, AmeriCorps would be a recent creation that would be an example of that. But one of the tragedies of what it is, how we've become divided is we don't have enough shared experience. So one of the things would be a year of national service chosen on a personal basis of what you'd like it to be that would also be part of this is called the American Exchange Program. We're modeled after the old foreign exchange programs. You know, we ought to take a farm kid from Iowa and have them live in a home of somebody who lives in South LA. And the kid from South LA lives in a farm for- That would be awesome. And, And we could do that. That's the kind of way to connect one another more deeply to understand the very, very broad range of cultures that now make up the melting pot of the United States of America. And you mentioned it before, we believe that the 25th anniversary of our found, excuse me, did I say 25th? No. Oh my goodness. The, 200, the 250th anniversary of our country's founding, the year 2026, is a time to start t- storytelling of really what the American narrative is. I think that for a country that prides itself on being a melting pot, we we cling so much to American mythology, which is like this single idea of why we are great, while also championing that we are a melting pot. And it's like, if we are a melting pot, we have to be great in more than one way. We have for too long had an American narrative that shoved under the carpet slavery that shoved under the carpet, the genocide of Native Americans. 
We have always been, we have always been collectively the best that we're capable of and the worst that we sometimes act on. What we need to do is an American narrative that is large enough and inclusive enough to tell the American story from the perspective of every subculture that is part of this extraordinary experience. And write the American future, right? Like it's like as much as we need to reconcile our past, I think our focus on it is so limiting. It's like we're all still arguing about like whether or not we should have a statue of a traitor up in the middle of town. Like we're still arguing about that, but like what about like a new statue for the people that are doing incredible things in America today or that will do it in America in like five years? Beautifully said. It should be as much about our feelings about and our hopes for the future as it is about our past. Do you think that the the work that you guys did with the listening tours might lay a foundation for how we would go about achieving that kind of thing? There's no doubt about that. We heard from many Americans from very different backgrounds. They began to tell us our their stories in those processes. Another reason that I have confidence that many of these recommendations will become a reality is that almost every one of them already has organized entities, nonprofit organizations, church organizations that are already working on this. So in the area of storytelling, StoryCorps is probably the best known and longest standing where literally they go around the country and invite people to tell their stories. Or you can go to when they set up a kiosk in your community and go to the kiosk and tell your story. And they've recorded every one of these stories. So let me put it for a moment in context that I spoke about earlier. To write the ship of our democracy, what I think the commission really understood and the basis of our work was that frankly to achieve the combination of these recommendations is going to require the American people to be pushing from the bottom up. This will not happen. This will not come about if we wait around for these recommendations to be driven top down. Now eventually both have to happen. But as far off track as we've gotten, this requires the American people to carry a huge amount of the action to make it happen. And sometimes when I say that, because I love speaking with people, people get a little intimidated. And they're saying, well, wait a minute, this problem's too big for me. This is too much for me. Well, this is the context to put it back in. Every single one of us, every single person who's listening to this podcast, sits in some circles of influence. We sit in circles of personal influence. We sit in circles of work where we work, where we have influence. For many of us, we sit in some circles of influence based on our faith. So don't think that it's your job to change the United States. It's your job in this issue of recommitting to a culture of re, to revitalizing a commitment to our constitutional democracy. You know, we don't agree on many things, but all Americans, even the ones who just participated in domestic violence have an unbelievable commitment to what they think about America. 
And some of how we act when we do that is unacceptable. So leave those extremes out. But every one of us takes something deep about what it means to be an American. And what we're asking for in recommendation six is that all of us, all 330 million of us, step back and think what we can do to reestablish our commitment to one another, to be civil and respectful, and to the value of our constitutional democracy, not just for us here in America, but for a way we've been a beacon of hope globally and which we have to reestablish. So, you know, I haven't said this yet, Hillary, and it's one of the reasons I have so much confidence in this report taking hold. For one thing, it is the context into which it is arriving. And because it is recognizing that it isn't enough to change how voting is done and it isn't enough to create a new media, you have to do all of these things. So the interconnectivity is expressed. So it becomes a platform for many organizations to join. But at the bottom line, the reason I have a lot of confidence in it, when you read it, I really am very confident that you will experience we have given you something that both inspires hope and is a clear plan of action. And once a person's inspired with hope, if they see a next step to take action, things happen. What I liked about the report, because obviously I read I read a lot of these and then distill them into podcast episodes so that my listeners don't have to. But this is one that I really, really think that you should read because it is not... It's not heavy and slow and like dense, but it's inspiring. And it's like a to-do list afterwards, exactly like you're saying. It's like, oh, you don't like this either? Just do these things and we can work on it. Well, having you say that, given that I know you do this mm -hmm. frequently, you have just articulated from your experience what we believed the report could do. And I hope it happens for every one of your listeners as well. Me too. So I guess beyond reading the report, are there steps that my listeners can be taking to help implement its recommendations or its findings? Like how do we, how do we make this happen? So one of the things, and I know you'll put this in your notes, but let me just say sure. it once. Your listeners should go to www.amacad dot org slash our common purpose and there you'll find the report but for the question you just asked me more important or equally important as the report is a way to sign up to become a champion of a recommendation but as a listener if you in fact are a member in an organization that you let's say citizen assemblies is one that really you understand, you're a climate change organization, and you'd like to help make a citizen assembly happen in your community. There are people in New York City that are very far down the road of citizen assembly on climate action for New York City. So if you wanted to get engaged in that way, have your organization connect with the staff at the academy, and you'll become part of the champions group that gets briefed on a regular basis, and at critical moments when the work on the recommendation, you or it could be more than one recommendation. But my message is get linked to say, yes, we want to help implement. Now, as a commission, we're not quite as far along, but I also really believe that one 
person can make a huge difference in the world. So if, there, if you as a listener are not a member of organization, but one of these issues grab you, you still should get in contact with the commission staff. And over the coming months, we're gonna figure out how to help individuals actually become part of the solution. Can Moderate Party become a champion organization? Absolutely. I would love to do that. And I think that if you guys are listening and you need an organization to be a part of, to implement one of these, we can champion it together. So I, I know that I will be reaching out to figure out how we can become a champion. And I encourage you guys to do the same as well. We can do it together. <laughs> Hillary, that's what I love. Time well spent turns into immediate next steps. And I hope that happens for many of your listeners. I'm sure it will. Sign up. Let's, let's do it. I'll be sending out links for how we can get involved as a group in our email list and then also include it in the show notes. Let me say one, can oh, I yeah, say one other thing, Hillary. One of the things that the co-chairs, Daniel Allen, at, from the Harvard Saffron School of Ethics and Stephen Heinz, the CEO of the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation and Eric Liu, the head of Citizens University and commission members like myself are available to give briefings. So somebody on this podcast, definitely you might be a classroom teacher and you decide that you'd like all of the administrators and teachers in your school to get a briefing on this report. Or you might want to get the state leadership group together. My point is, we are happy to engage with you. If it were not COVID, we'd be doing a lot of this personally. But in COVID times, we're doing it like this podcast or webinars on Zoom. So if you'd like, if you have a group that you believe could be helped move forward to get active on implementation or would really grab it as individuals, Ask for a briefing. We're talking to you, teachers in Virginia and Nevada that I know listen to this. <laughs> um, okay, so Carolyn, before I go, is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you that I didn't? I love that question. I think I want to say one last thing. I don't know that it's a question you should have asked me, but I hope this theme has come through in our conversation. Where we are in the attack on our democracy and the degradation of our culture, this work has to happen both amongst individuals and in our systems. We, it's just like we've been talking about racism for really front and center in this last year. Yes, each of us as individuals must come to grips whether we have ever understood it before or not in terms of how I hold whiteness as part of my identity, by definition is a cultural racism. So I need to do a deeper dive. And simultaneously, if I stick with racism, we have to get rid of redlining and housing. We have to get rid of toxic waste dumps only near African-American neighborhoods. And the list is so long. The same is true to heal the divides in our democracy and to evolve our democratic institutions to match the reality we're living in the 21st century. We have to do some systemic changes, more seats in the House of Representatives, term limits for Supreme Court members to name a couple. Equally important, we have to look in the mirror and we have to say, how can I define citizenship 
more as legally getting a driver's license, getting a social security number and voting. How do I expand my sense of what my role is in civic public spaces to be the American I want us all to be? On that note, Carolyn, thank you so much for your time and for walking through this report with me. I really appreciate it. It has been an absolute blast to have you on. Well, Hillary, I count it as a, as a blessing to have met you, and I look forward to tracking the Moderate Party podcast going forward. All right, that's it for me, guys. Thank you for listening to Moderate Party. I hope that you enjoyed this deep dive into all the reforms necessary to revive our democracy. If you want to learn more, there are links that you might be interested in attached to the show notes that accompany this episode. You can check those out in the description or at moderatepartypodcast.com. As always, if you liked what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, stay safe, guys. See you next time.